Hello, and welcome to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gregson. My mission is to find everyday people who are delightful. The people I interview have attractive energy and a positive outlook on life. And I want to give them a platform to share their stories so that others can have hope in the midst of their struggles and see delight in a world that at times can seem gloomy. I will uncover the life experiences of the guests that I interview, which have enabled them to look at life in such an inspiring and delightful way, with the belief that to understand the light, one has to be acquainted with the dark. My guests will share their personal experiences on finding their way through dark and hopeless times and give us a glimpse into the powerful gifts they received in their darkest hours to rise up, take up hope, and view life through new, hope-filled eyes. Is it possible that in our darkest hours, we are given a gift to find the light which leads to our greatest delights? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Come Towards Delight, the podcast. My name is Michael Gregson. I'm your host, and I am very, very excited about um, the podcast today. Um, I have one of one of my heroes in this life, Mark Miner, with me. And I'll tell you something about Mark Miner. Um, this is a man who is authentically himself. Good, the bad the ugly, all the in-betweens, this man right here has learned ultimate accountability, honesty, transparency, and it hasn't come easy. Um, I know Mark because I started going to LDS 12-step meetings when I finally recognized how much I'd broken my life and that it was getting to a point where it was becoming unmanageable and unfixable. I, I, I couldn't do anything of myself, and I finally recognized that I was the one that got myself there. It wasn't anybody else's fault. It was mine. It was my choice. And finally, after being pushed to go to AA meetings for years, um, being in trouble with the law, bouncing from job to job because I couldn't get out of the shame that I was living under in my life for my own thinking. Um, after traumatic brain injury and, and having time to heal, I, I recognized that I needed to get some help. And so I started to attend LDS 12-step meetings of my own choice because I, I wanted God to know that I, I needed all the help I could get from him. And I started going in, in Mill Creek area, holiday area of Utah. And one of the first meetings I went to, here was Mark Miner. And Mark was a missionary. He's been a missionary for the LDS 12-step meetings for, tw- for 14 years now. And I told Mark this before we started recording, but Mark said, Mark said some things that night where I got a little bit uncomfortable. And I thought, I don't know if that's the way I recognize pride. I see pride very different than what you just explained. And, and I, I kind of, you know, I wasn't in a position to really understand the wisdom that he was talking with, but I felt good. And so I decided to come to keep coming back. And the second time I came, Mark, Mark talked about pride again. And I was like, well, what, why aren't we talking about this beverage? that like has complete control over my life because I don't want to be in shame and I, I, I run to it. And he continued to talk about pride. And that time it stuck with me. 
And I remember riding the bus home that day and starting to understand pride a little bit more because I felt like God was trying to say, Mike, listen to Mark. He gets it. It's taken him some time to get there, but he gets it. He understands what it is that truly gets you to run to that instead of coming to me and listening to me. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I please listen into Mark's story. This, this is a man, and I, and I don't want to blow you up, but l- let, me, let me tell you this, Mark, or let me say this, Mark. This will be a good way of putting it. This is a man who understands who is in charge. This is a man who meekly understands the role of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and loves him. And so I just invite you to listen in, open your hearts, and, and you're going to share some things with us tonight that really are true principles, whether you are an alcoholic, whether you are addicted to something else, or honestly, whether you live on this earth, earth or not. We all have struggles. And, and these principles and, and things that Mark may talk about tonight they can benefit all of us if we want to draw near to the Savior or to our Heavenly Father. And if you don't believe in God and you're listening to this, I just invite you to open your heart. Let those feelings come, and you'll hear God talk to you. I know that. So, Mark Miner, Mr. Mark Miner, one of my heroes in this life. Grateful to have you here. And I'm just going to turn it over to you. Tell us about yourself, and then let's, let's dive in. Sounds good, Mike. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic addict and recovering perfectionist. Hi, Mark. And it, now I feel at home yes. because I have to start with that core truth. That doesn't define who I really am. But that's where I will go if I forget all the truths about who I really am. I know I have those weaknesses, and so admitting them right up front kind of diffuses them. And perfectionism is still an ongoing battle, but I haven't had to use drugs or alcohol for over 21 years now. And uh, I'm going to tell you, you know, why would I even talk about drugs and alcohol? That isn't really my story, but it is part of the story. Um, When I was a little kid, I absolutely loved life. I believed in the universe, the goodness of the universe, which meant I believed in the goodness of God. My dad was a military officer. I grew up believing in God, country, freedom, baseball, picnics, puppy dogs, and Christmas. <laughs> baseball. And, um, and those are all my early memories. And, but when I was six going on seven, something happened between my parents that devastated my mom. I'd never seen my mom really cry before. And I'm not going to tell you all the details, but it turned out that my dad had cheated on my mom. And she blurted out to me finally that your dad has found another woman and doesn't love me anymore. And in my young mind, I thought it was my job to try to fix my parents' broken marriage. And how does a little kid figure out those things? Well, I better be the most obedient kid on the planet. I better get really good at school and never miss church and get good at sports because my dad valued education and sports. And even though he didn't go to church, he came from... Uh, active LDS parents and it seemed to make my parents happy when we would go to church so my little sister and I would always go to church and you know my sister and I tried valiantly to help our parents to fix our parents but never understanding that wasn't my role Um, 
you know, and I never heard the word codependence till probably I was in my 30s. So where did that where did that leave us? I'll just cut to one scenario. We prayed my dad home from Vietnam after 13 months, and my dad uh, came off the plane, and back then you could run up to the plane. My mom ran up to the plane and embraced my dad, and I thanked the Lord. I was 12 years old, and I said, thank you, God. You brought my parents back. They hugged and they kissed, and they even came to church a few times after that, and four months later I heard them having a horrible argument. I found out my dad was drinking, and I heard things about another woman again, and I thought I'd failed. And the fire slowly went out. I don't tell you that for self-pity, uh, but it kind of paints the picture that I just didn't know where to go or who to trust. And I pretty, instead of turning to the God of my understanding, the Jesus who I truly believed was real, I turned away from teachers and preachers and parents and anyone else who could have helped me. And my whole world went gray for a few years. And finally, my parents said, we were living in the same house, but they were sleeping in separate bedrooms. And long story short, at the age of 16, I tried beer for the first time. And it filled this giant hole in my soul in a way that overcame the nastiness of the taste. And it just gave me a little bit of peace, even though my parents weren't even talking to each other then. And I'm not going to tell you all the details, but pretty soon I... I realized that I was listening to a lower power rather than a higher power. And that power gained control over me. And 18 months from the time I first tried beer, I was 17 years old in my senior year of high school. This is going to sound a little ironic. I was on the honor roll. I had still had nearly straight A's, but I got arrested for two burglaries to pay for my addiction to the hardest drugs on the planet. And I got put into the youth prison system in Arizona. And I had multiple chances because they don't throw away the key the first time you get locked up. But every single time I had a chance, I would either get high or drunk or do something along those lines until they finally remanded me to adult court because I was getting close to 18. And I ended up spending five years in the Arizona State Prison System. Yeah. I thought it was my job to fix myself. Um, it really did get my attention but I thought I'd burned all my bridges with God. Let me, real quick, that five-year period. So this began when you were a senior in high school? Yeah. And and were you in the prison system the entire time without coming out, or was it kind of back and forth? No, I, I came out one time for a short period, immediately got addicted to drugs and went back in. So I spent almost five and a half years out of a six-year period okay. in prison. Wow. And... I thought it was my job to fix myself. They gave me a chance to go to AA meetings, which is about all they had back then. But in AA, they talked about a higher power or God. And I thought, you know, I'm not going down that road. And then they also talked about honesty. And not just honesty, but rigorous honesty. And I said, you know what? They'll rip me to shreds here in prison if I'm rigorously honest. And so I said, good, I'm glad it works for you guys, but I've got this. And I didn't really say that, but in my mind, I must have thought that because what I ended up doing was getting my high school diploma. And then I started taking college classes and I tried to fix myself and I ended up getting an associate's degree with a 4.0. I went from not even being able to bench press 90 pounds to being able to bench 330 and squat 500 and deadlift 500 and 
I made the prison baseball team. I made the prison fast pitch softball team. I could even run 10 miles at a time. That was about the, lo- the most I could get because they wouldn't let you stay out in the, uh, in the yard long enough to ever run a marathon. You just kept going until they come call you back in. Yeah. That's awesome. But I got in the mm. best shape of my life physically. I took every self-help group they had. If they would mention God or spirituality, I would just kind of brush it off. But I, I was really committed. I took writing workshops, uh, poetry workshops. No kidding. Um, I did everything I could to improve my mind and my body and strengthen my outlook. And I was pretty optimistic. And I and not coincidentally, I stayed clean and sober. And after I, you know, I had that one time to get out briefly. I relapsed, but the last three years I was completely clean and sober. And I finally got out. I got accepted into the University of Arizona. And I was two weeks out, and then I remember waking up feeling really weird and hearing this laughter and realized I was laying on the floor of the classroom and people were laughing at me. And then I had this vague recollection, and all of a sudden the dread hit me. I realized I'd gone to the student union building, had a piece of pizza, and said, I can have one beer. It's been years and years. Well, I guess that one beer turned into two pitchers of beer in a short period, and I literally passed out at my desk. And denial is something that's not just a river in Egypt or a joke. It's something that every single person has to deal with. And what I told myself, at least in my case, um, I can only speak for myself, is I got this. It was just beer and maybe a little bit of weed, but I'm going to be okay. Well, four dirty urines later, my parole officer said I wasn't okay and threw me back into prison for another year. In that last year, a couple of things happened. Um, My sister, Leslie, who was 18 months younger than me, she had always stayed active in the church, the only one in our family that had. And I remember calling, you can only make one phone call a year. And I call, it must've been Christmas time. And we were talking and she says, Mark, I pray for you every day. And I said, oh, save your breath, sister. I'm a lost cause. She goes, no, Mark, I know who you are. And that planted a seed down inside of me. And then something else happened not long after that. I got a visit and there was this unknown middle-aged man out in the visiting room. And he introduced himself as Dean Evans. And I said, well, nice to meet you, sir, but who are you? And I said, well, I'm Bishop Evans, Bishop of your home ward in Sierra Vista. And right then I realized he had driven 140 miles through the desert to come and see me. And I said, well, Bishop, that really touches my heart. But what I don't understand is why you would come that far, because I don't really know much about the church anymore, and I'm not even sure there's a God. This good man looked at me, then he smiled, and he kind of chuckled as he said, Well, God knows he's God, and he sent me to tell you that he loves you, and so do I. And that planted the other seed. And before I got out of prison, I had my spiritual awakening. I dropped to my knees, and I basically said, God, I haven't prayed in 10 years, but I want to know the God that Bishop Evans knows and that my sister Leslie knows. Because if you're there... um, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a convict, and I have really messed up my life. Why would you want to help someone like me? 
And I heard God as clearly as I've ever heard him in my life. He said, Mark, it's because I love you. And suddenly I knew this was my creator. This wasn't some metaphysical God or um, that we were talking about in a philosophy class. This wasn't some essence of the universe. This was my father. And I knew it's in some level of my being in a way that I neither could nor would deny. And it changed me. And I got out of prison when I was 24, and I ended up serving an LDS mission at, at the age of 25. And I stayed clean and sober for three and a half years because that God literally cleaned me up. He changed me. And uh, I joked that they hadn't raised the bar very high back then. <laughs> but that's not, but that's giving, not giving God the credit for what he literally did. Where'd you go on your mission? San Bernardino, California, Spanish speaking. Yeah. And I learned Spanish and for, for good purposes this time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And I loved it. And, and BYU hadn't raised the bar very high either because they accepted me into BYU after my mission. Well, it sounds like you had a brilliant mind because you did well in school. You well, just... school was easy. Yeah. Uh, common sense is something my dad used to tell me when I was a kid that when they were passing that out, um, he thought I w they were passing out like train tickets <laughs> instead of brain tickets. And I, <laughs> and I just missed that one. Yeah. And he says, I never learned common sense. But God's grace is a real deal. Yes. And God literally cleaned me up and changed my heart. I, I, I had smoked for 10 years all through prison, all through high school, all through prison. And I quit smoking and I never touched another substance. And, I, and at BYU... I got called to be the elders quorum president. I got a scholarship by my second semester because my grades were good. And I met a young woman who I fell head over heels. And finally, after six months, I asked her to marry me. And on the day I asked her to marry me, she said, I think this is the day I'm supposed to break up with you. Ooh. And in retrospect, I can understand fully why. I, I treated her as if she was on a pedestal. And I was too afraid to let her know the real me and my background. Mm. And what, what that's really saying is that there was still some shame that was attached. And rather than just go for it and let her know who I was and, and find out who she really was, I treated her as if she was this statue. And she was on the ballroom dance team. She was the prettiest girl I'd ever seen. She had great legs. She had the smile that captured me from day one. But I was simply too slow and too afraid. And I lost her. And I tried three different times to get back together with her. If you were to see me right now, you would know I don't look like a ballroom dancer. But I even took two classes in ballroom dance <laughs> and went and knocked on her door and said, Eileen, I know how to dance now. That's awesome. And she looked at me like I had grown a third eye and said, oh, Mark, <laughs> it's not about that. Oh, that's awesome. So so I, I, I real quick, I want to I wanna stop for a second on this part. Because... You're talking about you not being willing to really be yourself. Strengths, weaknesses, all of it. You're not living transparently. And, and I think at this age, this is a common thing that a lot of young people go through because of the pressures and, and the, the faults, sometimes social ideas or cultural ideas that we have to be perfect. 
you nailed it. It's the cultural gospel. It's not what the gospel teaches. No. It's not what any system of truth really teaches. And it's not that it's not denied that we should strive for excellence. Yes. But this idea of having to be perfect and put on a front in front of people, it's yeah. the opposite of authenticity and and it keeps us from being who we really are. And what I believe now is God says, just be who you are and trust that I will make up for the difference. Whatever that difference is, yeah. as long as you're striving to be willing and, and giving me your heart, it's all going to work out. That's all that matters. But that's why I say I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> and I, I never understood any of that back then. I Could I have? Yeah, I could have. But what it also boils down to is I was so craving acceptance and approval yes. from the world yes. and even from this girl rather than from the source, the only source that matters. Yeah. Uh, the God that created us is our creator is the only one that can give us, a, give us a genuine sense of worth. So I was skating on thin ice, even though I was doing all, I was checking everything off the you're list. You're the elders corn president at BYU, right? I, I mean, mean, you're doing all the things. You know, I mean, <clears throat> several months I made sure our quorum had 100% home teaching because I had to go do 40 of the appointments just to make sure we had 100% home you're teaching. You're not only the elders corn president, you're the golden elders corn president. <laughs> but <clears throat> but what does it is, matter? But yeah, and this isn't to make, this is not to put down our culture. No, not at all. And this is definitely not to say anything negative about the gospel. But it is to say we need to examine what our truths really are and make sure they're bedrock truths founded on Christ and his teachings rather than the would'ves, the could'ves, and the should'ves that cause yeah. shame. Yeah. Brene Brown is a master of yes. teaching this. But there are many people in the church who have been champions of just being real. Yeah. My Elder Holland's my go-to oh. If, you know, whenever the boogeyman comes or the second coming, I, he's who I want in my <laughs> closet or under the bed. You know, I wish I could pull out Elder Holland in any situation. But any person who speaks truth and just stands up boldly and says, you know, and those are, aren't the people that say, I've got it. No, these are the people that say, you know, live your truth, yeah. be authentic, be real. Even if you are far from perfect, just be who you are and keep fighting. Those are the people who make the difference. Yeah. They, in fact, I was going to say, they don't say I've got it, but they sure do know who does got it. There you go. They give credit to the source, the, the light. And you know what? That I, so I devolved back into addiction again. I'm nah. just going to cut to the chase. Um, I went to the dentist, got a root canal. The last time, it was two days after the last time that Eileen gently shut the door and said, please go. And I had a little bell go off in my head and just saying, hey, hey stop you know what this is going to lead to but when you start listening to any voice other than truth we can get persuaded to do mm. all sorts of things and i said to myself i'll just put the prescription in my pocket just in case well the just in case meant uh the next day i woke up with a legitimate pain in my jaw but that pain in my heart is what drove mm -hmm. me to fill that prescription and i'm not going to tell the long sad story of falling back into addiction again but it happened 
And eventually I did what I said I would never do. Um, I did ask for help. I got clean and sober for four and a half months eventually, but then I cracked again. And when you, when you relapse, guess what comes with relapse? Uh, a hundred time dose of the shame. And this is where Satan will sometimes teach doctrine to you so he can destroy you. The doctrine That's is right. when you recommit a sin that you've repented of, the sin comes back upon you even, even more fault. But that wasn't the intent of the Savior to do that. He was saying, just don't take, take the atonement lightly, I believe. But Satan said, no, you committed that same sin. That just proves that you are worthless. And that you don't deserve to be saved. And I bought into that lie. And I ended up living on the streets, sold everything that I had, got into a five, $600 a day addiction, and mm. ended up committing a robbery. And this is, this is the moment that changed my life. I, I lied to my, the rationalization was, okay, this guy's in a store, his insurance going to pay for it. I'm not even pulling out a gun. In fact, I don't even know how to use the gun. I don't even know how to put a bullet in the chamber of the gun, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I just need the money and he's going to go on and just do a police report. Everything's going to be fine. And I did it and that's the way it seemed to go. And I was hiding in these bushes with a dark parka and dark glasses on. It was December in the middle of the night and nobody was going to find me. Cops were going by in the streets, but God knew where I was, and God said, time out. And he replayed what I had done in slow motion, high-definition detail, and this time I saw every particular. This wasn't some nameless clerk. This was a man in his early 40s. He was a brother, because aren't we all God's children? And this time I saw the fear in his eyes as he realized what I was asking him. And then I saw his hand start to shake as he reached for the cash register. And then I heard what I never heard the first time. He said, please don't hurt me. I've got kids at home. Oh. How could I have done this to another human being knowing what I knew? And I became judge, jury, and decided that I didn't need to live anymore. I didn't deserve it through. I was such a phony and a mm. fraud and a hypocrite. And I figured out how to get that safety off and the bullet into the chamber. And I still remember the taste of that metal as I pulled the trigger. And the trigger came down halfway. And then all of a sudden, everything went silent. And I heard these words. I'm still here. How can you be God? How can you be after what I've done? This wasn't that warm, fuzzy Jesus moment that we've had many times before. This wasn't anything other than the raw, awful truth. But God did not move. He stayed there with me. And I knew that. And finally, I was paralyzed. I couldn't hear, hear sirens. I couldn't see lights. Time stopped. And finally, I said, what do I do? He said, start by being honest. Take my hand. I'll show you the rest of the way. And after what seemed like forever, I finally put the gun down. And I walked out of the bushes. And there were some police down the sidewalk a ways. And I walked up to them. And I put my hands up. And I said, I'm the one you're looking for. 
And they took me into the station, and an hour or two later, I pl pled guilty to a five-to-life armed robbery charge because that was being honest. I had plenty of chances to take it back, but I didn't because if God was going to save my life, I was going to try this time to be exact in my obedience. Not perfect, but exact in my willingness. And he said, be honest. And... After a couple of months of withdrawal, I was in the prison, and I remember I was starting to feel better physically. I was praying every day because I knew literally God had saved my life. And finally, one day, I just had one of the most wrenching prayers I've ever had. I said, God, I've known you were there since I was a little kid. Even in all those years of darkness which, in which I tried to disbelieve in you, I knew you were still there for me. I can quote scriptures out of the, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. I can even quote a uh, passage or two out of the Talmud, the Jewish holy book, the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu holy book. I can quote... Uh, Einstein and Gandhi and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. And oh, even Bob Marley said something pretty <laughs> dang cool one day. But I don't know how to stay clean and sober. I don't know how to fix this. And God spoke to me and said, you know, those 12 steps you never thought were for you. You might want to reevaluate. It was just this very gentle invitation and I started to argue with God because in my head, I thought the 12 steps were a watered down version. And I had the gospel. What do I need the 12 step for? And this is literally what I said to God. I said, no, that's for the junkies under the viaducts and in the crack alleys and up at the soup kitchens. And he says, and where are you? I said, oh, an eight by nine prison cell. <laughs> and I go, you got me. Yeah. Okay. So what about the 12 steps? He goes, try them on. Just see where they bring you. And what I found were the 12 steps were simply the steps of faith and repentance that taught me one absolutely essential thing. The bedrock truth of all truths is how to be honest in a minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day thing I needed to learn because without that honesty, which became the glue and the foundation for living true to the gospel and being able to have all the other truths that I've always believed in, how can you believe in the Constitution of the United States? How can you believe um, even in baseball if you can't follow the rules? I needed to learn basic honesty, which meant when I was hurting to be honest about it, when I needed help, or when I couldn't get an A on the test, or when I couldn't fix my parents, just say, hey, God help me, what do I do next? And what I, what I eventually learned was this, was this. I didn't have to do all of that. God requires the heart and the willing mind. And so when I get overwhelmed, I learn through working the 12 steps to simply get down on my knees and say, okay, God, what's the next right thing to do? And, not, and then pray for the willingness to do it and trust that he would lead me on. So how do I make amends to this fellow that I robbed? I got to make amends because I'm working the steps now and both my LDS bishop and my 12-step sponsor said, okay, you know how to make amends to some of these stores. You write to them, you start sending, you know, I had this great paying prison job. I made $86 a month. 
I would send this store $3 <laughs> and this store $5. And I started paying things back. And that's another story for another day. But I started to have great experiences and learning to be honest and trying to make amends. But how do I make amends to this fellow that I robbed? And the counsel I received was, you get to own your part, not say you're sorry, because saying you're, they, they want to see you're sorry. Saying you're sorry is cheap. But what are you going to say? And I, so I fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed again. And I finally wrote to this fellow. I got his name. The police officer gave me his name. My caseworker allowed me to call this police officer. And they said, sure, if you want to try and make amends, here's his name and address. So cool. And I wrote to him and I said, brother, I am sorry for what I did, but you didn't deserve to have your world rocked by someone like me. And I don't know that there's anything I can do directly, but I'm willing. If there's anything I can ever do now or later, I owe it to you. I owe it to the God of my understanding. I owe it to the 12-step program that I've started to work. And so please tell me how. Well, God is a God of miracles who relentlessly pursues his children to help bring them back. I love that. And... I received a letter back from this fellow, and it literally came on my birthday. God wanted me to understand this was him. And this is how this letter started. He said, my dear brother in Christ, of course I forgive you. And he went on to tell me that, he goes, I know, I know that you are, they used to call us Mormons, so I know that, <laughs> I know that you're a Mormon, and I'm a born-again Christian. And I moved here from the Middle East from Pakistan. Maybe you've heard of it because I wanted to, to raise my family in a place of political and religious freedom. He says, but I'm persuaded that we have the same father in heaven and the same savior and you are my brother. And I've written to this guy for 28 straight years, three or four times a year. We would always write at Christmas and uh, we became friends. And uh, I'll cut to the end of the story on this particular thing, because four years ago, he asked me to come and visit him at his house. So cool. And I went and knocked. First, the, first time? Yeah, first time I saw him in person. I got out of prison in 1996, and so this was in 2017. He asked me to come and visit him, and I knocked on his door, and he opens the door, and he goes, and who are you? He has this little accent. Yeah. And I said, I'm Mark. And he goes, no, you're not Mark. You've become old and fat. <laughs> and you've lost all your hair. <laughs> and, and, and then he starts laughing. He goes, come in, come in. And he brings me into his living room where there's a Christmas tree and a manger scene on top of the fireplace on the mantle. And he talks to me like he's my uncle or my grandfather. And he asks how I'm doing. And he asks about my family and... He, and then he said, are you still good with God and, and this 12-step program? And I started to answer him, and he stopped me. And he goes, brother, he, he held me by the hand. And he goes, brother, you wouldn't have even come today, and you wouldn't have that twinkle in your eye if you weren't good with God. He goes, good, good. And we talked, and then he told me about his four daughters and 
his grandchildren. He even showed me pictures. So cool. And as he was showing me pictures, I looked at over at the mantle, and he had our Christmas card, the picture of my wife and our son and me. He had it taped on the mantle. So My cool. Christmas card and the guy's mantle that I had robbed 25 years before. And wow. I told him Frederick, his name is Frederick Parvez, and he deserves to have his name known because he is one of my heroes. I said, Frederick, you need to know how much your forgiveness has meant to me over the years. It has truly helped to save my life. And he pulled me in close and held me by the arm and looked me right in the eye. And he says, and to you, brother, I also owe my thanks because of your example and your faith and you never giving up. I am a better man today. Now I would ask you, if there was not a God who stood behind the promises of forgiveness and the promises of the 12 steps, which look it up someday, the 12 step promises here, I'll give you two of those promises. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful definition of grace? Amen. And thank God for that. Absolutely. And so, you know, here I am. I, I'm a Latter-day Saint, but I regularly, and I'm a missionary in the church's addiction, repro, addiction recovery program, which I truly love. But if a meeting's got a 12 in it or an A in it, I can find my place in it because instead of picking apart the differences, I look for the common ground. And the greatest part of the common ground is we have a God who is willing to remain anonymous if that's what it takes to bring him, bring his children back. And eventually he will reveal who he is and what is truth as we become ready. But we don't have to put on a suit and tie and quote scripture at first. If all we can do is say, God help, you know, I'm a junkie in an alley. Um, I, I've cheated on my wife and she's divorced me. It doesn't matter what our weakness is. Every person has multiple weaknesses. We all have Achilles heels. God will take it. His reach reaches our reaching and God. he will take us where we are and he will lift us to the source, which is light and love. And he never speaks to his children with shame. Now he will speak the truth and sometimes the truth hurts, Ooh. but it does not leave you with shame. No. It always leaves you with a way out, yes. with with a way up, and that's that's what God has taught me. So I only had to spend nine years in prison, and when I say only nine years, really, yeah, I've spent fourteen plus years of my life in prison. I've been to multiple treatment centers. I have learned through all of those. And no, I didn't always learn my lesson the first time. It's really clear. <laughs> I, Who does? But God has never <clears throat> thrown me out, no matter how many times I faltered. And instead of the regret and shame that used to always, always attach until it felt like I had a, I was carrying a double semi behind me some days, mm. what I have learned is that while God is not to be trifled with, you see, I've lost a couple of relationships with wonderful women because I simply was afraid to be the real me or I relapsed before the relationship got far enough off the ground. 
And when I asked God why, he said, because you took lightly that which I would have done for you hmm. and that which I had given you. So I know that I, I'm not saying to, to blatantly just trust that we can always repent. I can't even, I quit going to funerals when it was the 400th person I knew in addiction who passed away back in 2007. Man. That's when I quit counting. Now, I, I still go to funerals on occasion, but the addiction is a very deadly disease, but nobody gets out of mortality alive. And I would say even for those who have died in addiction, there is still absolute hope. Yeah. We have a God who goes to the utmost to redeem his children. But I'm kind of digressing. Um, I, those nine years in prison were well spent. And uh, I'm just going to share two more experiences. Uh, before I got out of prison, I was in an institute class. We have Institute of Religion. I used to exercise every day, go to school, and without exception, took every church-related thing I could because I was hungry for truth. I was like a sponge. And I loved my institute teachers, Brother Baker down in Gunnison and Brother uh, Maybe and Brother Marsh up at, uh, in Draper. How cool. And some of the best men on the planet. And that's, I truly believe that. Yeah. One day, Brother Maybe said, we're going to have a guest. And you don't want to miss this one. And in walks somebody that I recognize, Elder Marion D. Hanks of yeah. the Quorum of the Seventy. He was in the presidency of the Seventy. And he came in and he just said, uh, brothers, I didn't prepare anything. I'm just here to talk with you and answer your questions. Now, who's got a question for me? <laughs> After we got out of the deer in the headlight look, a couple <laughs> people threw out a couple of softball questions. and But he answered them with a smile on his face. And pretty soon we were chatting. And, and we were talking about some things that really mattered. And this one fellow said, how do I know I'm not a son of perdition? And the whole room went silent. And... He goes, well, brother, can I rephrase that? He goes, how do we know that any one of us can ever make it to the celestial kingdom? And this guy nodded, and he goes, okay. Because he goes, most of us in that room, he goes, how many of you are sure you're going to the celestial kingdom? I think brother maybe was the only one to put up his hand. <laughs> you know, and he was, he's a sealer in the Jordan River Temple and a patriarch, and he knows the truth. But everything, all the rest of us were like, uh, maybe, you know, if God's really good on a certain day. <laughs> and, you know, we, this was uncharted territory for most of us, but I guarantee it was something that pervaded our thoughts regularly. Sure. And he, and he said, so let me pose something. To get to that answer, we have to know how do we feel the spirit? How do you feel the spirit in here? One guy says, oh, whenever we watch one of the BYU devotionals or conference talks that Brother Maybe plays, someone else says, oh, when we sing the hymns of Zion. And that's, oh, yeah, when we have the LDS music nights and Janice Cat Perry comes in or Shannon Denton or one of the other singers comes in, he goes, yeah, I can definitely feel the spirit. And this guy says, when I get to hug my boys in the visiting room. And then this other guy said, yeah, when my grandmother writes to me, I always feel the spirit. And... Pretty soon we were getting really tender about things. Yeah. And uh, and then my friend, this guy is six foot five. He's not a little guy. And and Elder Bow, I mean Elder Hanks looked at him and said, Then why do you continue to come 
if you never feel the spirit because he had said he never felt the spirit and he goes because this is the only place i feel peace and then this slow smile spread across elder hank's face and he goes hmm well this is doctrine satan is a great imitator and duplicator but the peace of the lord which passeth all understanding satan can neither imitate nor duplicate so that is the very evidence that the atonement is still working in your life, brother. And if the atonement is working in your life, then the promise of eternal life is still yours. And before I knew it, I saw this six foot five brother rocking back and forth with the tears Motion. pouring down. And he says, yes, 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 thank you, thank you. I will never forget how the spirit touched me in my heart and said, God's not done with you yet. And no, you don't have all the answers, but you can you can be assured that the promise of the Lord is real because you're feeling the spirit right now. So I got out of I got out of prison in 1996 and got off of parole in 1997 and I married my sweetheart Tammy. It was nine years between relations. No, it was ten years between relationships, and we got married in the Mount Tibinogus Temple. So cool. And I married a normie. When I say that, I don't mean that with any disrespect. What I mean is she's never tried anything harder than Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and I tease her that she's repented of that. She goes, most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. And uh, she is my sweetheart. And she is a good, good woman. She's a returned missionary. And that's what I mean by a normie. Somebody who's try, who has tried her best for most of her life just to do the right things. And nobody ever does it perfect, but she's never thrown me out yet. <laughs> and we tried for years to have a kid and uh, we tried we tried artificial insemination. It didn't work. We got an adoption list, no calls. Uh, go figure. I'm 40 plus year old ex-convict who's short and bald and getting fat. Nobody ever picked me. But there's no self-pity because God knew what he was doing. That's right. And he sent along a little boy to us. My wife still, I still remember the day I was mowing the grass in May. And uh, she got out of the car on a Saturday with happy tears in her eyes. And I go, what? What's going on? And she goes, we're pregnant. Oh, man. And I really yeah she goes i thought something was up so i went down and the doctor was there i we're gonna have a baby our boy was born on christmas morning of 2004 he's 16 now um i've been able to help coach him in baseball now he's so good that i can't even keep up with him <laughs> he kicks my butt at the gym but i'm going to tell you a little story in closing about my boy when he was in third grade at sarah park elementary in orem um he came home at the beginning of the year and said, Dad, they're going to have this assembly for all the dads, and you got to come with me. And I said, sure. And we went, and they have free pizza and free Coke, and they're playing rock and roll music. I still remember Survivor, Eye of the Tiger, <laughs> and it's thumping loud yes. through the speakers. And after, after a couple pieces of pizza and a couple Cokes, I'm ready to do anything they <laughs> ask me to do, right? And they, give, and they say they want us to be volunteers, watchdog dads, to serve in the hallways and the playgrounds and the library, the lunchroom, and even in the classrooms. However, and they, they need the dad's presence in the school. And so I fill out the application. I get down to the bottom line. It says, uh, background check required $20. Ex-felons uh, felons need not apply. And I had to tell Ammon, our son, 
you know, I've been in prison before. This means I can't do it. He goes, oh, no, Dad, you're supposed to do this. No, son, they won't let me. I went up and asked someone there, and they said, no, no, don't, don't spend your money. And you know how that makes a dad feel? And I'm sure it didn't make Ammon feel any better than I felt inside. Well, fourth grade, I got to coach his baseball team again that summer. And fourth grade starts, same assembly. Ammon comes home, he's all jazzed up. Come on, Dad, this is your year. I said, go get the, go get the paper, uh, the application. And he brings it home, it's the same application. I said, son, I can't do it. They just won't let me. And he had this look in his eye mm. that you just know, you never want to see that look in anybody you love's eye. And two days later, I get a phone call. And this is Mrs. Belletti. I'm Ammon's principal. And she could tell I was driving. Pull over. And I go, oh, no. What's he, <laughs> what's he done? And um, your son was in my office this morning. Okay. And he said, Mrs. Belletti, I want my dad to be a watchdog dad. And she said, no problem. Um, here's the, the form. Bring it back with $20. It's not too late. The training's next week. Oh, you don't understand, Mrs. Belletti. He's been in prison before, but he's not that man anymore. And then something shifted in her voice. And she said, Mr. Miner, I've done my background check on you already, and you're approved. You're the kind of dad we do want in this school. And by then, the tears were just coming. And by the way, you still owe me the $20. <laughs> and we started to laugh, which, which was perfect. Yeah. And I got to come and do the training, and for five or six times a year for the next three years, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, and I got to be in Ammon's classroom and until sixth grade. By sixth grade, he was a little too cool. To yeah, he's like, no, Dad, you can take this year yeah, off. Yeah, <laughs> and so I would go in other classrooms, and and it's it, uh, one of the funny parts of the story is out on the playground. Um, I'm only five nine. I love sports, but I can jump about two inches. <laughs> And but the kids would always pick me to be on their basketball team because they're all four six, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I felt like Shaq out there, you know. The first one picked, I'm dominating. <laughs> I hope you swatted a couple, but yeah, at least once, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't shoot, and I didn't do anything. That's but fun. it was just yes, fun hanging yes. out with the kids. But you know where God really spoke to me? It was with the kindergartners and the first graders. Those little pure spirits, they get their love all over you. And they're basically unfiltered still. And I, a couple of the teachers, they really trusted me. And they would allow me to go out in the hallway and just do one-on-one -on -one reading practices for so like cool. three, three minutes with each of them. And this one little boy one time, um, he read really well. And as he went back, I said, Johnny, that was so good. Thank you. And he turned around, smiled, and ran back. And he hugged me around the knees because he's, he's only yeah. about as tall as my waist. Yeah. And he, he looks up at me in the eye and he says, Mr. Minor, I love you. And then I heard God as clearly as I ever have. You know those labels that you've hung on yourself for so many years, ex-convict, alcoholic addict, even if in recovery, less than, not good enough. You might try this. You're a dad now. You're a husband. You're a coach. You're a teacher, you're a businessman, you're a citizen, you're a missionary, and you are mine. 
And that has put a Teflon coat on my soul that does not allow the shame to attach so readily anymore. I know that I'm going to make mistakes, but I believe in my creator that he knew this from the beginning. It was part of the plan that we would make mistakes, that this whole experience that we call life on this earth is basically a laboratory and a teaching lab to learn. And I loved what Elder Uchtdorf said a few years ago that... He said two, two different things over the years that relate to mistakes. He goes, do we ever berate a toddler who stumbles in learning to walk? He goes, no, we pick him up and encourage him to keep going. Likewise, God does the same with us. And the other, which is eminently practical, is his talk on, he always gives the pilot talks, yes. um, uh, a matter of degrees. He says, every pilot on a long journey finds himself going off course. He says, we continually course correct, and we don't berate ourselves when we course correct. He says, that is what repentance really is. And this is what I've learned is my definition of repentance. It's not this scary, um, intimidating, double semi-load of guilt that I'm having to deal deal with. It's simply turning away from what doesn't work and turning to what works and he who makes it work. And I will close with one of of the quotes of someone that I really like, uh, Neil Maxwell. I think Neil Maxwell and C.S. Lewis are up there playing fourth or fifth dimensional chess just for the fun (laughs) of it, you know, while they're they're rearranging worlds. Uh. But Elder Maxwell said it like this, because I I mentioned early how God... um, chases after us uh, relentlessly. Yes, I love that. So this is Elder Maxwell's quote. His relentless redemptiveness exceeds my recurring wrongs. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm not done with you yet, though, Mark. Okay. So we're going to say amen. We're going to let it sit for a second. Man, I... uh, Thank you. Um... I love you, my friend. You are, you're a great man. And, um, thank you for, thank you for your willingness. Right. I think that's the, that, uh, that stands out so much in your stories. As I hear it, I just hear it took all of that to get you to understand the most important piece, willingness. Which, yeah. which to me is hand in hand with humility and empathy. I, I've, I've, in my own life, I've come to personally feel like empathy is the most beautiful word in our English language because of its meaning. And what it means is someone who understands, someone who's willing and recognizes who knows it all, who's put it all together, and who is watchful, who is mindful, who is relentlessly in pursuit of us, we just have to choose to make ourselves available to him. And that wow. that is a meek man. And, and, and Mark, I you got me emotional. I, I'm so glad to hear your story again. I've heard, I've heard bits and pieces, but um, I just, I love you, my friend. And, and I, I personally just want to thank you for 
the legacy that you've left. That's amazing. And your son nailed it when he, when he said, dad, you, you need to be a watchdog. He gets it because that's the labels don't matter. It's the heart. And this guy right here would be a better watchdog than anybody out there because of, because of the mistakes he's made, his willingness to finally give it up, surrender it to God and take his hand. Yeah. Right. And, and I want to give credit to the two other components of that whole story. First, Mrs. Belletti for Lori Belletti for recognizing that there was something beneath the surface of this that deserved investigation not just to say thanks appreciate it we'll get back to you yeah because who in their right mind is going to say yeah we want an ex-convict here in our school especially in elementary school (laughs) (laughs) yeah but she follows the spirit she follows truth and she has become a dear friend now that's so cool and that little that little i don't even remember if johnny was a kindergartner or first grader in my mind he was a kindergartner but who just said I who didn't have the filter to say no I shouldn't tell this guy that I barely know that I love him but I'm just gonna go tell him I love him because he just made me feel good I want to go make him feel good and God used you know as Elder Holland has said although it may be and I'm just paraphrasing although it may be greatly disappointing on occasion that we're all that God has to use (laughs) to work with yet he uses us to accomplish his work and he never begrudges us for our clumsiness and our many failed attempts. He simply just continues to encourage us and use us. He and he's so he's so proud of us. And I, I used to hate. I used to. I grew up in an environment where that word "proud" is like, no, we shouldn't use that. We're not ever supposed to be proud. But I'm like, I don't think that's the way proud that kind of proud is no that's a parental proud yes a truth-based proud as elder holland said i am sure god would pull out his wallet and show everyone your picture yes that's the proud i'm talking about man okay i've got a few questions for you okay mark i could i could keep going i i love i love your story the way you share your story um it's filled with the spirit. It's true. It's authentic. It's you. It's, it's humble. It's meek. It's powerful. And it's full of some bad decisions, but it's beautiful. And I, I just, I, I, I want to go back to a second and I'm just going to say something real quick. Then I've got some questions for you, but I want to go back to when you guys were sitting with elder Hanks and he was talking to you about, you know, that idea of perdition and, and, the questions were asked about how do we ever know if you're in, you know, you're worthy of the celestial kingdom and the big fella six, five fella saying I'm here because of the way I feel. It's the only place I get peace. Um, I was doing some research on the scriptures a few months back and I wanted to know what's the thing that's recorded the most that Christ said that was recorded the most. And it is, be not afraid, but believe. Mm. Be not afraid, but believe. And don't be afraid. Peace. Peace. 
And it's the one thing that you were in search of your entire life, trying to find that peace as you went through those breakups, as you went through so many of these experiences you went through as a child, trying to live up to expectations that that somehow got pushed upon you that you were the one that had to somehow save your parents' marriage. Peace was fleeting. You couldn't find it. Those are, those are fear-filled, anxiety-filled, you know, feelings and emotions that come at you. And peace you can have in the worst storms in life if you just turn to Christ no matter what. And, and your story is a witness of that along with many others, you know, that like in the scriptures you read about people that had peace during the darkest hours of their lives. In real life, you, you see and you hear those stories and yet we forget that that's the most beautiful thing that God can offer us is peace. Breathe easy. Yeah. Relax. Let it go. Let me take care of it for you. You just have peace. Mm-hmm. Do your best to love, right? I love it. I um my goodness. Okay. So, some of the questions I have for you. I first of all, I I love the I love one of the ways um not one of the ways, but the way you talk about the 12 steps. Cause a lot of times, a lot of times there's people that, um, get forced into these programs, right? The state kind of uses the 12, right? They come and get court cards signed because for drug court, you actually have to prove that you're going to 12 step meetings. Yeah. It's like, it's like being in timeout from school in some ways. That's right. (laughs) And, and, and when we first start going, I mean, I've, I've had this in my own life. When we first start going, we take a form, we have them fill it out, and we and we and we get our report, and we're good. And and so in a way, um, it kind of becomes what it's not supposed to be for many of us because we don't go there on our own free will and choice. And and that's okay; it doesn't have to happen that way. But most times that it is a successful thing, that's what ends up happening. But I I, I guess the the question I have for you, Mark, is. Tell me, um, as you first started going, um, what, what was the principle, what was the step or two? And, and I know you mentioned a couple, and so I'm, I'm curious if that's the same answer you'll give. And if it is, expound on it. But what, what are the first couple of steps that you really felt like, once you started taking those steps, it kind of got you understanding, okay, I, I'm starting to see what this means. I'm starting to see what this can do for my life. So I used to think the sayings in all the 12-step programs were rather trite, like keep coming back. It works if you work it. Um, uh, and yet that very phrase, keep coming back, is basically what Christ says to us as well. And um, I learned that no matter how many times I faltered or that I started to lapse into disbelief, I may not have relapsed, but but I was on I was on thin ice. My my faith was not secure in whatever it was that I was doing. I would feel the spirit say, Nope, this is where you're supposed to be. 
and I learned slowly to attune my inner um, guidance or antenna to say, okay, I don't have to know the end from the beginning because isn't that what faith is? It's just a step into the darkness, hoping that's either if you fall, someone will catch you or that you'll land on firm ground and you'll be able to see the next step. And so even though I felt completely shattered and scattered initially because after how many relapses you can't even count (laughs) um but yet i'm going to try it again but i felt like god was directing me because remember when god saved my life he said if god is gonna he never wastes his words and if he was gonna say look you, you are honoring me. All these things that you can quote, all these things you know, all these things you believe in, I'm not negating any of that. That's all truth. But if you want to get there from here, hey, why don't you try out these 12 steps? And I think that I needed to have that foundational piece that God was supporting that journey. And even though I didn't, I argued with God. <laughs> you know, I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew God was there, and I tried to say, no, that's not for me. And God says, well, why don't you just give it a try? See, God never intrudes on our agency. Yeah. He never forces. Yep. Um, he persuades, and and this, he gently persuaded me. And over time, I would find in a, just a little bit more of an insight, an aha moment, um, you know, um, a glimpse of light or truth and I that would connect pieces together. And I started to see that these 12 steps, in a sense, were basically just a rephrasing of universal truths. They weren't attempting to be the gospel and replace the gospel, but they were inherent. If you're living the gospel, you're inherently working all the 12 steps in some degree. And then, you know, the gospel will add more. It adds the temple to it, but it basically, you know, you practice these principles on all your affairs. Well, step three is trusting God. And then you, you, uh, step 11 is we seek for the inspiration of God and try to carry out his will on a daily basis. And step 12, we practice these principles. That sounds a lot like living the gospel. <laughs> and when you start to realize, you go, well, I never saw the forest through the trees initially, but I started to, to work together. And what I realized is, no, can people get clean and sober any other way? Yes, there's multiple other ways. And I just know that for me, that was the way that God instructed me and walked me through it. And I'm not going to think that I'm unique, that I'm the only one that can do it this way. Uh, but I'm neither am I going to think it's the only way God can save someone. Uh, God has multiple ways. But ultimately, everything that leads back to the source. And God becomes very, very clear as we come become funneled into the truth then it becomes when we're ready for it, he will reveal more and more. But until we're ready, he doesn't want to throw us out. No. He says it's not time to burn the tares yet. Yeah. The shame would just pile on and pile on. Yeah. And he's still gathering his children. And one of the greatest stories I ever had was the one I told before we started talking here, where um, I'm not going to use his name, but the parable of the 90 and 9. And where this missionary came in 
And he said, I'm going to go serve those people. And literally in the very first meeting, the spirit convicted him that he was one of those people. There is no them and those, us and them. He says, we are all us. We are all part of the one that God has left to come and save. Every single one of us needs redemption. It does not matter what kind of high station you're born into or low station, economics, uh, sex, uh, religion or lack of religion, country, origin, ethnicity, any of that. It does not matter. All are alike under God, to God, black and white, bond and free. His objective is to save every soul who will be saved, and he will go to the utmost to do so. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I, gosh, beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. Thank you. Okay. I want to come back to when you were about 17, 18, when kind of the legal things started hitting for you, right? When you're in high school, you're getting good grades, you're doing well, you're, you're, you're still kind of dealing with some shame a little bit, but just like under, like you're, you're the weight of feeling the expectation that you've got to somehow fix your mom and dad. I, man, I, 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 that's, that's incredible um, to put on a 17, 18 year old mind is, as, as you start getting into this period of your life and you start to go through some of these things that you go through, I, I think you, you tried some alcohol, you, you'd started to kind of live that lifestyle a little bit. You're dealing with a lot of things and, and I'm not going to label them all, but just a lot of pressures of life, a lot of, you know, social things as you're trying to figure out who you are ordeals in the home where you, you know you're this young kid trying to take on this response or feeling the weight of this responsibility that in reality wasn't on you but your mind as a 17 18 year old kid you don't have enough experience to really understand how to process that stuff in a healthy way true story mark what would you say to a young mind that is in that that kind of moment themselves and and then also on that thought if there's ever a young person that listens to this say they're they're you know their teenage years or they're trying to learn and develop a good character themselves what what would you say to to be kind of preventative to getting into that type of place with that much pressure on you so to answer it in a little bit of a roundabout way um when President Nelson, um, he was in the corner of the 12 at the time at a mission president seminar, but he was asked, how do you deal with addiction? He says, teach them their divine identity. But I've heard him talk about this a couple of times. What it really comes down to is reminding someone who we really are. We're, we grow up believing we're children of God. You know, we're sons and daughters of the Most High. And most of us, when we're young and our family is healthy, truly believe that. But at some point, we start to feel we're just not good enough, that we can't measure up because we don't even understand the devices of the dark side, for starters, the pressures of the world, which are, which are this life is a test. Well, it does a dang good job of testing <laughs> us, doesn't it? We don't understand a lot of that. And so... Um, to answer your story in short form, it was about 13 that I really started to derail. And 
I drank alcohol right up my 16th birthday, and it was every single day after that until I ended up in prison. Mm. I mean, alcohol, then this drug, then this drug, until I was on the hardest drugs on the planet. So that's a different story for another day. The answer is to teach people first to listen to them, to give them a place where they can feel safe because... If you don't feel safe, how are you going to ever express these things? And and then remind them what it means to be a son of God. A son of God, a child of God, does not mean that we have to be perfect. All it means is we have to trust and we have to say help and we have to say help as many times as it takes until we get some traction with that, until we actually get the help that we need. And one of my favorite songs, see, I... I love truth wherever I find it. My first concert when I was 13 was Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I, I don't go back to hard rock anymore. Not that I don't enjoy the instrumental, instrumental abilities, of, but it's the spirit of things. But So what do I gravitate to now? You know, I'm not going to say I listen to classical and Mormon tab all the time. What I listen to is K-Love Christian yeah. Radio. And there's a song by Mercy Me called Dear Younger Me. Yes, dear. And, it's, and Dear Younger Me, part of the lyric says, this was never meant to be carried beyond the foot of the cross. Yes. And that's what his advice, looking back to when he was a young, and if you've ever seen, um, I can only imagine oh. the movie with uh, Bart Millard, you know, his dad was an alcoholic. He couldn't measure up. He couldn't fix his dad. The family was fractured. His mom was gone. And his message to himself, he mentioned this was an autobiographical song. I would go back and say, just carry this load to the Savior. Trust in the Savior. Let Jesus be your focus, your primary focus, your only focus, until you know that he's got you, because that's always his message to you. And the more that we focus on the Savior and allow him to become real in our lives, that becomes the answer. And all of us fall short. So I'll tell you a real quick story. I was supposed to teach, I was supposed to speak at a fireside, and they told me it was going to be for an older singles ward. Then it ended up being for an older single stake, and then they invited multiple stakes. And 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 I said, okay, I guess there's going to be a lot of people here. And then they told me, here's the list of all the people that have spoken there before. It's the best and the brightest and the funniest and the, and the best musicians in all the church. And included on the list was Elder Bednar and Elder Holland. And oh, and coincidentally, our last speaker was Elder Holland six months ago. You, <laughs> you get to follow Elder Holland. Congratulations. Yeah. And, and this is how I tell this part of the story. I usually practice a pretty good program, except for when I don't. And I had one of those human moments in which I, and I don't even remember what the weakness was. I might have, I might have looked at a girl's butt going down the street. I might have got angry at a car that cut me off. But whatever I did, it caused me to lose the spirit for yeah. a minute. Uh-huh. And when you lose the spirit, and you've had the spirit most of the time in my last 20, 30 years, it's devastating. And guess who rushes into the gap when you lose the spirit? Always the adversary. I mean, he comes in like stormtroopers and and just pounding on me. And I, I dropped to my knees and I said, Father, I don't know why I did what I did, but 
that's not who I am. That's not what I want. Please forgive me. Help me. And I literally felt in my mind's eye the Savior come into the room. And in my mind's eye, I was standing on a, at a pulpit and he was coming through the cultural hall of an LDS church. And as he came through the partitions, he looked at me and he, he smiled, looked me right in the eye, and he put out his arms and said, come. Isn't that Christ's message always, just come? And I said, I can't. I'm not ready. I'm not worthy. And I cast my head down. And I felt his words I've, just piercing me. And I looked back up. And he said, I didn't ask you if you were ready. I didn't ask you if you were worthy. I asked if you're willing. And I said, yes, before I even had a chance to let my mind process, I, my spirit cried out, yes. And before I knew it, he was holding me. It swooped in and picked me up and was holding me like a little baby. And all of a sudden, I just felt clean and pure and whole again. And the spirit just devolved this into my mind instilled it into my mind it's probably a better word that in me you are made whole in me you will overcome remember this pattern for the rest of your life now go forward and and do your uh do your service and the spirit just came flooding right back in and instantly i remembered alma thirty four thirty one which says, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it says, if we will repent, which means turn away from what doesn't work and turn back to he who makes it work. If we will repent, immediately shall the great plan of redemption unfold. Immediately. And one time I questioned it, got, and so everything came out well with that, with that talk later on. But one time I was questioning God about that because I'd made another mistake. I don't remember what it was. And he goes, really? He goes, really? You don't remember our history? Because God talks to me just like I'm talking yeah. with you in our oh, language. Oh, I can tell. And and he goes, you really thought that you needed to crawl through the broken glass and do push-ups in the barbed wire before I take you back? <laughs> and I go, no. Then he goes, okay, you're good. And it was gone. The guilt was gone. The shame was gone. And again and again, that's what I mean about how he relentlessly pursues us. I, we're going to come back to that relentlessly pursued because I've, I've got that like written down in bold letters. I'm going to probably make a sign of that, put it somewhere in my house. I, I couldn't agree with that thought that not a thought that fact, um, more than I do. And when he said it, I'm like, that's it. That's it. Um, you, you said something a second ago that I've got, I've got another question for you in, in just a minute, but you said something a minute ago I just kind of want to speak to just a second. Um, you talked about who we are, our identity, uh, why we're here on this earth, right? And um, it's a classroom, right? The classroom of life. Yeah. Why aren't we, why aren't we like helping our kids understand that, that hey, look, I, I think... For me, Mark, when I went to school, I hated test days. I like I heard the word test and I went, oh stress. That sucks. Like anxiety, stress, like in my mind, I'm like, I get F's. I'm I'm the prodigal son of testing at school. Like literally, I felt that way about myself. So what did it cause me to do? Well, it caused me to cheat every once in a while. I'm not gonna lie. Um 
I, there were times when the teacher would leave the class and I would run up to her book and I'd write certain grades and whatever. And just, just pressure. It's the perfectionist as well. Exactly. Perfectionist comparison. It's this idea that we have one shot with the judge and the judge's, uh, you know, is whatever it's called. The thing he slams down the gavel. Thank you. Um, one shot. We're standing right there. And picture Judgment Day for a second. Hmm. I don't see anybody sitting up at, at, at behind a desk, if you will. I see somebody right up there with me. Face to face. Arms around me. And with pure love in his heart. Asking me if I want to come home. And my answer all day long is yes. As long as you'll have me home, I want to be there. And I know what he's going to say. If he didn't want us all home, why would he send us down here? If he didn't want us all home, why would he send a savior? Why would he allow his perfect son to, to go through all of that. To raise his hand and say, send me. I'll do this. Be- because every single one, the one you mentioned earlier, is absolutely worth it. And I believe he would do it for one because that's him. He didn't send us down here to fail. He didn't. It's not what he intended. He didn't create so much to walk away with so little this classroom is perfect and yeah we have some casualties along the way but mark i think you nailed it when you said even for those that sometimes just haven't had the chance or the opportunity to 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 feel their value and worth it's gonna come the day will come in the gospel of Christ, there's opportunities to do work for those that are past, and they'll have their opportunity as well. That's the beauty of eternity. That's a, that's a big classroom, I would say. Yeah. But why do we devalue the power of what our Savior Jesus Christ has done hmm. by not accepting his offering, his perfect blood, his unconditional love for every single one of us, regardless of our class, our political party, our grade point average, our job title, our ability to speak with great words or not, and simply, why do we, why do we not believe that he's he has overcome sin and death to the point where he will bring us home. Mm. I believe we can trust that. I believe that I'm not going to have a perfect path to getting back to him so that he can say, yes, you've walked that path perfectly. Come on in. I believe he's going to say to me, Mike, you understand what I've done for you. The willingness in you, Mike, the willingness was the lesson that you had to learn. When you fall, were you willing to look to me? 
and say, help me understand. Help me, help me know how to give this to you. Help me to trust that when I do, you're going to lead me the right direction. Mark, I think the way that you talk about Jesus Christ and his atonement and what he's done shows the absolutely beautiful love and commitment that he came with. Do you think he raised his hand and said, I'll do this? If he knew that half of us weren't going to even be able to use that offering? I think he knew that there was risk involved, but he had the belief and faith in all of us that every one of us, every single one of us could succeed. And, and every time he gets a chance to get that truth into us, he absolutely will do it, even if it's the 5,000th time. Yeah. I remember when I quit smoking, I, I was joking with God, and I said, I might have, he goes, he goes uh, how, I said, how am I going to quit smoking? I smoked for 12 years now. He goes, you're going to pray. I said, I might have to pray 400 times a day, and I swear <laughs> I heard God chuckle and said, I'll be here. I'm ready. I'll be here. <laughs> pray always. You never yeah, stop. You right? never stop. Yeah. And I, I never smoked another cigarette after that. And and I think we view the atonement and God and mortality with such narrow eyes mm -hmm. at first. And of course, our vision is going to be limited because we don't know what it's like to be a moral. It's a classroom. It is a We're classroom. Learning. And every time we think we pass the test, all of a sudden they pull out the calculus. <laughs> and we yeah. go, what the freak? Yeah. My brain, my brain, my brain hurts. Yeah. And That's when I hand the calculus book to God and say, hey, will you take care of this book? I, I got nothing. Well, so one of my favorite uh, memes that I've seen recently is when the devil reminds us of what we've done, remind us of what Jesus has said, I've dropped the charges. Yeah. Mm, I like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So so this, this leads into relentless. What does that mean to you, Mark? What, like, I, I mean, I know you've shared experiences that have proven that, but I guess just... That that idea, he relentlessly pursues us. What does that mean to you? Um, with single-minded focus that is born of the absolute empathy and charity of the only one who gets us at such a level. And he believes in the divinity that is within each one of us to such a degree that says, world's without end, pain without end. I will pay any price to bring you back and let you know who you really are. Because I can't do it without, without your willingness. But I will remind you 20 billion times if that's what it takes before and for you to say yes. And every time you say yes, I say yes. Because I've been saying yes to you from the beginning. And I think that's why we chose to come to this earth because we looked in, you know, Heavenly Father's eyes and we looked in our Savior's eyes and we said, we simply said, I believe. Trust. I, and, and it's belief. And we didn't know what mortality was going to be like, but they, they looked at us and said, you know what? It, they knew it was going to be tough, but they said, we believe you can do it and you will do it. 
and just never give up, just never give up. And I have seen people who have had legitimate deathbed repentances, and I have seen people who have been literally pulled out from stage four cancer, stage four liver failure, and are still alive now because they had that God moment. And God said, if you only believe, all things are possible. And here they are walking around as miracles. And to their credit, they are testifying with God in every fiber of their being. Uh, Kelly's one of my dear friends. She's got four and a half years clean and sober. And you need to get her for one of your podcasts. <laughs> I'll tell you about her sometime. But the short version of she was in the deepest form of addiction was literally a streetwalker who was held captive by her drug dealers and used to their profit for, and this went on for 20 plus years. Uh, she's now been to the temple. She's now, she's now served in the 12 step program. She is as good and clean, a pure of a sister as if she had never had a spot on her. It's, it's, though as your sins be as scarlet, they become as white as snow. Never there. Right. And that's the way God looks at us. He looks at us just as, and that's why I love Elder Uchtdorf's analogy. We're just little toddlers. Can you ever get mad at that darling little girl that we saw at the door? Even if she pulls the cat's tail, even if she falls down and, and breaks the crystal uh, vase that belonged to your great, great, great grandmother, you're not going to get mad at that little girl. You're just going to say, Hell, let me help you pick it up. Let me, let me patch up your knee. Let me just hold you, love you. And that's God multiplied infinitely for every one of us. Amen. Mark, you're awesome. Um, last question. Yeah, and you've shared so much of it with us tonight. I mean, we could pick out so many things and answer this question, but I'm, I'm going to ask you anyway. So, so one of the, the question I always ask my guests at the end of the podcast, what has, what has all this trial and weight and mistakes and failures, what have, what, because of all of those, those, that moment when you had the gun in your mouth, and you felt you, you felt you had no worth. What is the gift that you received because of that moment? Those moments leading up to that. Well, that's the question of the ages, and we'll still be talking when the sun comes up tomorrow. If I, if I really get into it, but it's it comes down to this and i'm not very articulate about this because i don't have the words to fully express how i feel but god simply said i love you to such a level he said i love you but i felt it to such a level that i could not deny it nor did i want to deny it and something in my soul cried out i believe yes and it was like somebody turned on the light and more and more just kept coming in. And every time I felt like I was drowning because I can't drink out of a fire hose quick enough, God said, okay, you can. You don't have to run faster than you're able. He goes, this isn't about doing it all right now just because you can conceive. It doesn't mean you have to be it in, in every... God relentlessly forgives. I mean, that's part of that 
that divine love. It's like, okay, you're saying slow down? Okay, you're the one that gets to choose that. But every single time that I've opened back up and say, okay, God, what's next? He just gets, he gives me deeper and deeper appreciation and gratitude and love that is boundless. And it's, it's literally the manna for my soul. It's the food that my spirit craves. It's the opposite of addiction. This is what I always looked for and I could never find in the world not let alone a substance, yeah. nothing in the world. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say that there's not a lot of things worth striving for. Um, accomplishments, um, uh, relationships, there's a lot of really good things that partially fill the God hole. But God's love is the only thing that fills that hole, every nook and cranny, because not only does it fill it, then it expands your soul and I can see that's the path to be that to eternal joy because nothing feels sweeter, tastes sweeter and makes me feel more whole. And I guess I have a lot of words after all, but that still doesn't <laughs> begin to dis, to explain it. Yeah, I, I get it. And that it's that the idea of living water, right? Absolutely. You he relentlessly pursued you. And you surrendered and you became willing. And that, that's exactly what you just described. And once you plug into that and, and you, give, you, you put your life in his hands, he connects you to everything. You become a part of something that is so much bigger than you, but yet you feel so much more value to God, your soul. You, un, you start to understand and you say thank you. Yeah. So... I just thought of something because I learned through stories. Yeah. You know, I, that's why I love Thomas Monson. That's yes. why I've loved a lot of our church yeah. leaders. And, and you know, for that matter, Mark Twain and yes. lots of the great story, uh, Charles Dickens. Yeah. Um, so I'll just tell you a quick story. Um, our boy was 13. He decided he wanted to make money. He goes, Dad, how much you pay me to mow the lawn? But our lawnmower was dead. So we got, got a new lawnmower. And we went out and got it started. And it was it was like April or May, but the grass had not been cut. And it was like six inches <laughs> and it was kind of wet. Yeah. And even though it was a cool day, before he had gone up and back one time, he was sweating. <laughs> I mean, he, he was pushing with all of his might and that bag was filling up and clogging. And finally it shut off because the bag was so clogged. And we, I go empty it. And uh, we get started up again. And I go, let me show you something. He goes, no, Dad, I got this. And he just pushes and he gets to the end of the row again. And I go, I need to show you something. You see that lever up there? What's that bar for, Dad? He goes, you pull it back. That's an automatic clutch. And he goes, try it. And he pulls it and the lawnmower jumps <laughs> and it starts pulling him along. <laughs> And he gets to the end of the next row and he turns around and he throws up his arm and he goes, this is awesome. <laughs> and I said, that's how God is with us. That's what grace is. That's the power of God. That's the goodness of God. He doesn't want us to do it alone. alone. He wants us to learn. He wants us to work for sure. But he's the one that even gives you the power to go start the lawnmower to begin with. I think Ammon's rem uh, remembered that lesson and so have I. Well, and, and my gosh, Mark, to like, he's coming back after one row and he's sweating. And he, 
Yeah. You, you let him put in the work. You, you let him struggle with it. And then when he was ready, the gratitude is there and he goes, I get it. I get it. Right? That's what he does for us. Again and again. Oh. And he never begrudges us. No. It doesn't matter how many times we ask. He just simply says, I'll be here. He even <laughs> chuckles. And, you know, I am persuaded. This is the last thing yeah. I think I need to say. Oh, God's got an absolute sense of humor. Look who he has to work with. Yeah. People like me and you and our wives and our kids. I mean, if he didn't have a sense of humor, this earth would have been fried yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> but God does have a sense of humor. And I know that I can share something that's a little bit humorous with God. And I can, I don't necessarily hear him laugh, but I can feel the universe kind of swell because gratitude is, is what opens the windows of heaven. It opens my heart. It opens heaven and we align and thank you for giving me this opportunity tonight. It's been one of pure gratitude and joy. I love you, brother. Mark, you, you literally, I hope you I hope you know how much I love you. I, I do. You've made a huge impact on my life. And this is a good opportunity for me just to sit and, and just bask in the spirit. It's been here. And, and I just hope, um, I just hope you, I hope, I hope that you're rewarded. I, I, and I know listening to your story, you are, but I just hope that God continues to remind you of what, what, because you've been willing, what he's allowed you to be a part of and you to do in your life for the goodness of the ones out there that needed to hear. Cause I was one of the ones um, that you, and I was one of the ones yep. that the people that walked before me, we all walk yep. on the shoulders of giants. Yep. And you were, you were one of the ones that night when you talked and you talked to the one in me, right? Because you were willing and you listened. So when, when we're prepared, God always sends the right people at the right time. Like the Bishop that showed up at the prison. Yeah. 120 miles, 140, round 140 trip. miles. Yeah. And Arizona desert is no fun to no, drive in. Heck no. <laughs> heck no. Well, my friend, you and I are going to do this again in about a year. Does that sound good? Yes. Okay. Love you, brother. Love you too. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed today's show. I would love to hear your feedback. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform you use. If you or someone you know has a delightful story to share that I need to talk to, please email me at come towards delight at gmail.com.